we're glad that you're here this morning. For those of you who are online, we're glad that you're here as well. Again, if you're new to us, we encourage you to take a moment to fill out this Connect card. We'd love to connect with you to see how we could better serve you, so you might do that. I wanted to start this morning, by the way, I'm Pastor Eric. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Westview um, and have the privilege to uh, bring the word this morning. For a while now, you've, um, those of you who have been around, you've heard us talk about the pledge campaign, the Pledge for the Reach campaign. And just to, to give you an update, um, those pledges, we would still gladly take those. If you're not sure what the Pledge campaign is, the Reach campaign is, I would encourage you to, to find me or somebody that looks like they know what they know and uh, ask them about that. Um, but I wanted to make a special announcement this morning, and that is, uh, effective July 1st, there has now been a $150,000 matching grant. And so that means that your dollar has now doubled with your pledges for the first 300000 Yes, that's, that's good news. And so the REACH campaign, just as a reminder, um, that's a, a, we want to pay off the debt over the next two years, the debt that we uh, incurred when we built the children's wing, which has been such a blessing. And before we move into the next phase, we want to make sure that we're free and clear of that. And by paying that over, off over the next two years, we anticipate that would save over $250,000. And so that's what we're, we're trying to, to get done with this pledge campaign. Again, um, feel free to, uh, to ask me or someone that if you uh, have questions about that pledge campaign, um, and we'd be glad to do that. So, a mile in their shoes... So this is a, a, the new series that we're in. Did you bring your walking shoes? Yeah, it's kind of a little less enthusiastic. So we have some up here if you need some. I particularly like these. I think they're good. If you get into snow, you could ski. If you're running, they can cut the wind. Uh, somebody owns those, by the way. So a mile, what is a mile in their shoes? Well, we've been taking time um, over the summer to examine some of the personalities from Scripture and ask the question, if we were to walk in their shoes, what could we learn? And so the first week we walked in the boots of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, and the sandals of Peter, and we learned that God uses sometimes some unusual people to teach us. And in this case, he used a Roman centurion to teach one of the original apostles, Peter, that the gospel was for everybody. That's good news. It's good news for us. Pastor Dylan, in the second week, then helped us walk in the shoes of Barabbas, that well-known criminal that was, that was released when Jesus was sent to be crucified. And he asked the question, is grace, was he worthy of grace? And the answer is absolutely not. But yet grace is still offered it's offered to all of us. That's good news. And then last week, Pastor Wayne had us walk in the, the shoes of one that was simply called daughter. And it was the woman uh, in, in the New Testament that had an issue of blood, and she, just, she wanted to touch the hem of Jesus' robe to be healed, which she did. But Jesus wanted her to know that there was more than just healing. He wanted her to be whole. And that's what he wants for us. He wants for us to be whole. And so that brings us to this morning. And so if I were to tell you this morning that the shoes of the character we're going to walk in is from the book in the Old Testament of Numbers, what would you think? You'd think, oh joy, <laughs> isn't that the book of gats and begats and lineages and how to build the temple and sacrifices and all of that good stuff? And the answer is yes. But one of the most unique, maybe interesting biblical encounters comes from the book of Numbers. And that's what we're going to talk about 
In fact, the character in this story is not only mentioned in Numbers, he's mentioned in at least four other books of the Bible, including the last book of the Bible in Revelations. And so let me set up the journey for you. So the nation of Israel has been held captive in, in Egypt for 400 years. And God raises up Moses. He's helped them escape Egypt. They've crossed the Red Seas. And now they're on a journey to the Promised Land. And God is leading them on this journey. And so after, pursuing, after the pursuing Egyptian, Egyptian, it's easy for you to say, Egyptian army is demolished in the Red Sea, the Israelites continue on their journey, and they're crossing a, a myriad or a number of different people groups and territories, including people like the Edomites and the Canaanites and all of those ites. And now they're getting ready to encounter anotherite, the Moabites. And so that's where this story takes place. So... To this morning, we're going to find the shoes to walk in in numbers, and we're going to walk in the shoes of a, of a couple of different characters. And so let me ask you a question before we get started. Show of hands, how many of you have ever talked to an animal? Now, for the one that didn't raise their hand, just go on YouTube. You can find all kinds of videos that you can watch to get up to speed on what that is like. But in Numbers, we have this encounter. We're going to read from Numbers chapter 22. This story takes place over about three, three different chapters, and I'm reading from the message this morning, just to give you a different flavor of this story, just to get, give it some color. So here's the, the story. The people of Israel marched on and camped on the plains of Moab in Jordan, Jericho. Balak, the son of Zippor, learned of all that Israel had done to the Amorites, the people of Moab were in a total panic because of Israel. There were so many of them, and they were terrorized. Moab spoke to the leaders of Midian. Look, this, Moab, this mob is going to clean us out, a bunch of crows picking a carcass clean. Balak, son of Zippor, who was the king of Moab at the time, sent emissaries to get Balaam, son of Beor, who lived in Pethor on the banks of the Euphrates River, his homeland. Balak's emissary said, Look, a people has come out of Egypt, and they're all over the place, and they're pressing hard on me. Come and curse them for me. They're too much for me. Maybe I can beat them. We'll attack and drive them out of the country. You have a reputation. Those you bless, stay blessed, and those you curse, stay cursed. So, so far, our story's not too out of whack, is it? There's a couple of guys that we've read about. We have this guy, Balak, who's the king of Moab, and he's petrified. He's heard the stories. He's heard what the God of the Israelites has done to the people who kind of fail to, to pay attention to Israel or they, they, they're not welcoming or good host. And so Balak knows this. He's heard the stories of this nomad people. And more importantly, he's heard of the God of Israel. And so he summons Balaam. So who is Balaam? Balaam, we learn, is a sorcerer or a seer. And the role of a sorcerer or seer was to come and engage in the gods, little g, and to see if there's something that can be done, generally in the way of curses, curses although sometimes it would include blessings as well. And Balaam had a reputation for being good at what he did. He was a good sorcerer. That was his identity. Now, before we continue the story, there's an assumption, a false assumption here that I need to address with you. And that is, when we read the rest of this story, it's easy to assume that Balaam, this sorcerer, was a God-fearing man. And the truth is, that's inaccurate. He was a diviner. He was used to engaging lots of gods. 
this particular instance, it just happened to be the God of Israel, Yahweh. And Moses, who is the author of the book of Numbers, makes it very clear in this dialogue. Because when Moses refers to God, he uses God in the, in the form of Yahweh, the God of Israel, when he's referring to Balaam, and Balaam just calls him the Lord, who could be one of many lords. And so Moses is trying to make it very clear he is not a God-fearing man. In fact, Universe, uh, con scriptures universally condemns Balaam and if you want to check me on that you can fact check Joshua 13 Deuteronomy 23 ne Nehemiah 13 Micah 6 2 Peter 2 Jude 11 they all condemn Balaam as a sorcerer and his practices so he is not a God fearing man and that leads to the question why would God use Balaam now we like to think of God in the supernatural don't we we like to think of, of, of God, the God who, who works in the supernatural, who does these, all these miraculous and powerful things, kind of like Oz and the Wizard of Oz, huh? But the truth is that God also works in the natural. And here, Balak has already summoned Balaam. He's already employed him to do something, and so rather than work in the natural, God is simply going to take the natural, and he's going to work in the natural, and that brings an important point this morning. When I get too focused on the God of the supernatural, I miss out when he's at work in the natural things in my life, and God works more often in the natural in your life than he does the supernatural. He works more often in the day-to-day -day of your life than he does the, the crisis and the, and the celebrations of your life. God works in the natural. He is a supernatural God. That's an accurate statement. But he's work at work in your life in the natural. As for Balaam, Balaam is more interested in what he could get than acknowledging God, Yahweh God of Israel. He's more interested because when you read this story in its entirety, Balak promises a palace is full of silver and gold if you'll curse this nation of Israel. That's what he's interested in. You know what? He's about to get schooled. <laughs> and so, this morning, as I was preparing this, uh, this, there was a question that struck me. And there are three questions I'm going to use today to, to help us engage in today's um, lesson. And so you might want to just write these down. I, I think they're on the screen. But question number one, are there times when I'm more interested in what I can get from God than who I am in God? Do I ever engage God for profit? No, maybe not literally. Maybe I'm not after, you know, a handout or money, but are there times in my life when I'm more interested in the blessing and what I can get than the willingness to pay the price for serving him? Are there times in, in my relationship with him when I'm more interested in what I gain than what I give? Are there times when I lump him in with the other gods, little g, in my life and folks we have lots of little g's in our life don't we those things that rise to the the prominence in our in our hearts things that we begin to worship rather than the creator god of the natural and supernatural are there times in life when i'm more interested like balaam in what i get from god than who i am in god balaam was about to learn that the job he's employed to by balak is probably more than he bargained for 
So let's get back to our story. So now at this point, Balak has summoned Balaam to come and visit him. And in Numbers chapter 22, verses 9 to 13, we read this. Then God came to Balaam. He asked, so who are these men with you? Balaam answered, Balak, the son of Zipher, king of Moab, sent them with a message. Look, the people that came out of Egypt are all over the place. Come and curse them for me. The second time he's been asked. Maybe then I'll be able to attack and drive them out of the country. God said to Balaam, don't go with them and don't curse the others. They are a blessed people. The next morning, Balaam got up and told Balak's nobles, go back home. God refuses to give me permission to go with you. So far, so good. So far, it's not too out of, out of whack in this story. So twice, Balak summons Balaam. And twice he refuses to go. But in the second time, in verse 19, we get a taste of Balaam's true heart. He says no, but then in verse 19 he says, but let me go back one more time and just see if God changes his mind. And this time God agrees to let him go. Interesting. But here's where our story takes a twist. As we read on in chapter 22, verse 21, Balaam got up in the morning after God had said, all right, go. Balaam got up in the morning, he saddled his donkey and went off with the nobleman from Moab. As he was going, though, God's anger flared. The angel of God stood in the road to block his way. Balaam was riding his donkey, accompanied by his two servants, and when the donkey saw the angel blocking the road and brandishing a sword, she veered off the road into the ditch. Balaam beat the donkey and got her back on the road. But as they were going through a vineyard with a fence on either side, the donkey again saw God's angel blocking the way and veered into the fence, crushing Balaam's foot against the fence, and Balaam hit her again poor donkey God's angel blocked the way yet again a very narrow passage this time there was no getting through on the right or the left seeing the angel Balaam's donkey set down under him Balaam lost his temper he beat the donkey with the stick then God gave speech to the donkey let me read that again then God gave speech to the donkey now let me ask you another question I asked you earlier if you'd ever talked to your animals Here's the real question. Has your animal ever talked back? And before you raise your hand, you might want to think of the consequences. So, the donkey says, What have I ever done to you that you've beat me these three times? And Balaam said, Because you're playing games with me. If I had a sword, I would have killed you by now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your trusty donkey on whom you've ridden for years right up until now? Have I ever done anything like this to you before? Have I? He said, no. Then God helped Balaam see what was going on. He saw God's angel blocking the way, brandishing a sword, and Balaam fell to the ground, his face in the dirt. God's angel said to him, why have you beaten your poor donkey these three times? <laughs> Same question the donkey asked. Have I come here to block your way because you're getting, I've come here to block your way because you're getting way ahead of yourself. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If she hadn't, I would have killed you by this time but not the donkey. I would have let her go off. Huh. I'm not sure it's possible to read this story and not see that God has a sense of humor. I mean, think about it. We've just acknowledged that God is a God of the supernatural, right? He could have handled this situation in any way, a myriad of ways he could have taken care of this whole thing, and he chooses to give speech to a donkey. Isn't that funny? 
I'm not sure if it's more humorous that the donkey's talking to Balaam or Balaam's responding and engaging him in a conversation. I wonder what the men that were traveling with him thought of this whole thing. I mean, what a great story in this boring book of Numbers. I want you to put on another pair of shoes this morning. I want you to put on your horseshoes or donkey shoes. Do donkeys wear shoes? Any horse people in here? None? Uh, all right, put on your donkey shoes for a minute. When the donkey speaks, we learn something very important about the donkey. Number one, she was faithful in her duties. She was a burden carrier. That's what she'd done her whole life. That's what she was called to do. That was her identity. She was confident in her identity as a burden carrier. You know, the old adage is that donkeys are stubborn. Apparently, this donkey wasn't as stubborn until it came time, a matter of life and death, and she lays down under Balaam. But up until this point, she's been pretty trustworthy, she says. She was also obedient. She did what she was asked to do. When Balaam needed to go someplace, she took him. And the only thing that kept her from taking Balaam where he wanted to go this time was there was a sword-brandishing angel standing in the way. That probably would deter me as well. And so she was obedient. The donkey was also the first to be aware of God's intention to change their journey. That's interesting that the donkey saw, and yet this, this uh, man who's a sorcerer didn't, who engages the gods, didn't see the angel. It was a donkey. And we also see that she received undeserved treatment for doing what anyone would do, avoiding death. She was beaten three times. Unlike Balaam, who hired out to whoever paid him, his donkey knew what she was and whose she was. Balaam was her master. Her task, her identity was to be a burden carrier, to carry him where he wanted to go. That brings us to sermon note number one on your outline. Balaam struggled with his identity, his donkey, not so much. The irony here for me is that it was a donkey who saw the angel in the danger head. Again, not Balaam, this supposedly God consultationer. It was a donkey. And there's a wrinkle here that needs to be addressed. We just said the donkey was obedient. The donkey was faithful. But apparently, Balaam is too. I mean, number one, he listened when God spoke. Number two, he refused to go when, Balaam, when God said, no, don't go. And number three, he did, and he said only what God told him to say. So apparently, Balaam was just as good as the donkey. So why is God suddenly angry with Balaam? God had first told him to go, and then he changed his mind, and he becomes angry. And so there appears to be a contradiction in the permission of God and the anger of God, doesn't there? Well, the answer to this lies not in the contrary wavering actions of God, but in the contrary character of Balaam. You see, God knows our hearts, doesn't he? He knows a word before we speak it, he knows our thoughts before we think them. God knows Balaam's heart. And the truth is that Balaam would have just as easily gone and cursed Israel as blessed them if God had not given him those words to say. God knew his heart. And so the, the contradiction is not in the permission of God that turns angry. It's in this contrary character of Balaam not to realize whose he is. Not to recognize the God of Israel. He would have cursed Israel as easily as he would have blessed them. Balaam wavered in his identity. 
His identity was tied not to his master, but to whoever paid him the most. Which leads to the second question I'd like you to write down this morning. Is it possible to be disobediently obedient? Is it possible to be disobediently obedient? Now, I can't speak for you, but for me, the answer, sadly, is yes. Probably too often, I'm guilty of being obedient just for the sake of being obedient. There are times when I'm obedient when in my heart of hearts, I really don't want to. There are times when God says, don't go, and I don't go because he said don't go, but deep down, there's always a but when I want to go back and say, Lord, is that really? Can I, can I really go? I mean, there's a palace of silver and gold over there kind of waiting for me. So, is it possible to be disobediently obedient? Is that really obedience? Now, don't get me wrong. I live in the real life. I was also raised in a dad of I told you so's. Anybody else? Why do I have to do that? And your dad says, because I told you so. There are times in life when you do that. It's just you do so because you're told to do. But there are times in your life when obedience is a choice. There are times in life when that obedience has to be born out of who you are and whose you are and not in just obedient for the sake of being obedient. To obey in my heart first, not just to check it off a list that I was obedient again. And that's what God's doing here. Eventually God opens Balaam's eyes. He sees the danger he faces and you know maybe that's even a bigger miracle than a talking donkey is that God opened the eyes of this pagan sorcerer to see who he was to let him in just a smidge and it causes Balaam to react it says that he falls on his face now he doesn't confess to all that he's done all he confesses to is beating his donkey and so he's still not recognizing who the master is his character still doesn't change but he is willing to turn back but the angel encourages him to go ahead and but only say what he tells him to say Let's continue. Chapter 23 now, verses 5 to 12. And so now Balaam is gone. They've uh, spent some time in the wilderness, and they built altars, and they sacrificed donkeys. and uh, Not donkeys. They, uh, his donkeys probably scared if that was a fact. They sacrificed oxen, bulls, and all of that two or three times. And so now they're to the point where there's, there has to be a, an exchange. Blessings or curses. And we read this in verse 5. The Lord gave Balaam a message for King Balak. Isn't that interesting? The Lord not only put the words in the donkey's mouth, he put the words in Balaam's mouth to say. And it wasn't curses. Go back to Balak and give him my message. So Balaam returned and found the king standing beside the burnt offerings and all of the officials of Moab. This was the message that Balaam delivered. Balak summoned me to come from Aram, the king of Moab, brought me from the eastern hills. Come, he said, curse Jacob for me. Come and announce Israel's doom. But how can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I condemn those who the Lord has not condemned? I see them from the clifftops. I watch them from the hills. I see a people who live by themselves set apart from other nations. Who can count Jacob's descendants as numerous as the dust? Who can count even a fourth of Israel's people? Let me die like the righteous. Let my life end like theirs. Then King Balak demanded of Balaam, What have you done to me? I brought you here to curse my enemies. Instead, you blessed them. But Balaam replied, I will speak only the message the Lord puts in my mouth. So Balaam does as God directs. Israel is blessed not just once, but eventually three times. And it's, again, it's also worth noting that Balak 
or that Balaam got the words to speak from God. Words of blessing. And this is a reminder to Israel the three times that this blessing was complete and emphatic. Can I remind you this morning that God's blessing is resting on you? As his child, you too are completely and emphatically blessed. There are those around you that try to imitate you, just like Balak, that try to discourage you, that try to curse you, but it's not going to happen because God's blessing rests on you. It surrounds you. God continues to work in you and for you and through you. The hand of blessing of God is on his people. Again, that's good news for us, isn't it? Needless to say, Balak is not too pleased with Balaam. At the end of chapter 4, we read about Balak, um, that he withholds the palace of silver and gold. And I wish that I could tell you this morning that Balaam's life then ends wonderfully. But again, we get to see the true character of Balaam in, in the rest of the story. In chapter 31 of Numbers, in verse 16, he's mentioned as one who was instrumental in leading Israel astray. In 31.8, he's listed in a group of men killed when the Midianites face off against the Israelites. Which leads me to my third question this morning. Do you ever struggle with your identity? So when I ask that question, what do I mean? What is our identity? The dictionary defines it simply as the fact of being who or what a person or thing is. In other words, it's how you're known or identified. That's a simple definition. So sermon note number two, our identity shapes us. It shapes us. Our identity molds us into the way that we live. Our identity impacts who we are. Every molecule of who we are is impacted by our identity. And our identity affects everything we do in life. Everything. Balaam had a reputation as a sorcerer. That was his identity. He sold out to whoever would pay him the most money to do his sorcery deeds. That was his identity. It shaped him. It impacted his life, and it affected everything that he did in life. Our identity is the same. Identity is what comes to mind when your name is mentioned in a group when you're not around. So when people are talking about you, what are they saying? It's based on your identity. Our identity is the foundation for how we act and react when faced with both blessings and curses. It's how we act and react that flows out of our identity and who we are. And our identity is the filter used when we speak to, of, and about others. So when you're in that group talking about somebody else, how does your conversation go? That's born out of your identity. Our identity is our living epitaph. You know what an epitaph is, right? It's that phrase on your tombstone, but it's a living epitaph. It's the living memorial marker that says, this is Eric. That's your identity. Our identity shapes us. It impacts everything we are and everything we do in life. It's important. Which leads to sermon note number three. 
our success in this life as Christians, as parents, as siblings, as friends, as co-workers, on the golf course, on the tennis court, our, our success in life will only come when we know and accept our identity is in Christ. Our success in this life will only come when we know and accept our identity is in Christ. When we sell out for profit, our true character is revealed. Balaam's was revealed. It eventually cost him his life. You know what? If I had to choose to walk in the horseshoes of a donkey or the shoes of Balaam, I'd choose the donkey. The donkey knew who she was. She knew and was confident in her identity. So perhaps it would be something like this, sermon note number four. Better to be a donkey and know who you are than a respected, well-known seer who doesn't. We are blessed. Our identity is in Christ. In fact, as we end today, I want to end with words of blessing over you. They're not my words. They're words straight from Scripture. So you might want to write these references down as well. And if you struggle with your identity and who you are, spend time this week with just these three verses. Ask, what does this mean for me? The first is 2 Peter 2.9. And anytime you see the word you when I'm reading this, you could put your name in there. So it would read like this. But Eric... You're not like that, for you are a chosen people. You, Eric, are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. Would you say with me this morning, I am God's possession. I am God's possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. He called you out of darkness. He's removed that darkness from us so that we could walk in his light you are a royal priesthood you are chosen by God you are his very own possession God has you wrapped in his hands and nothing can take you out of those hands nothing that's identity that's knowing who you are Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we, for Eric, you are God's masterpiece. Now, when you think of a masterpiece, what do you think of? What? Art? Any particular art? Any, you have any famous or favorite artist? Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa yeah. You, that's the one. That's about the only one I can name, too. It's a masterpiece. It's something created by someone who's so good at what they do, it sets that piece of art apart. Folks, you are set apart. You are a masterpiece. For you, Eric, are God's masterpiece. He created you anew in Christ Jesus so you can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Donna read the scripture this morning from Psalm 139 that, that says that, before, that God knew us before we were knit together in our mother's womb. And when he knit us together, he was a masterpiece at it. He created a masterpiece, and he created a masterpiece with a plan to do the things he designed years ago for you to do. 
even before you knew you were going to do them. God put purpose in your heart, in your path. Philippians 3.20 But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we eagerly await for him to return as our Savior. I live here but my passport's taking me someplace else. I'm a citizen of heaven. That there's a mansion that God has prepared for me, a place that he has intended for me to go, already there, just waiting for me. Because my identity and my citizenship is not here. It's there. So, what's your identity? When you go to work tomorrow, who are you? When you speak in the break room, what will you say? When you engage somebody who wants to bless you, who wants to curse you, how will you act and react to that? The answer to that question shows your identity. This morning, we're going to enter just a time of prayer and offering as the worship team comes up. But before they do that, um, take these words of blessing this week and let them shape you. But I thought it was important this morning that, that we do address one thing. In light of the decision that was made this week, let me just tell you that there are four things that we can do. Number one is we can celebrate lives that potentially could be saved. Number two is that we can be concerned for the division that's going to be ongoing based upon this decision. And we can care for those who are hurting. Number three, we can love people on both sides and recognize that they are not our enemy. We have an enemy who come to kill, steal, and destroy. And number four, pray. Pray that the God of the natural and supernatural would bring healing and protection and start by praying for our elected officials, for our justices, for each other. God calls us to be healers, to be reconcilers. So how do we live that out? Let's pray. Father, there's a lot here to digest. Father, let me begin this morning by offering my identity to you. Lord, I don't want to be a sellout. I want to be sold out. And so, Father, whatever there is in my past that would keep me from being your child, let that bubble up. Whatever there is in my life right now that would prohibit me from doing your good works, Lord, remove that. Help me to know and believe that my identity, my hope, is in you. There is no other. Remove the little G's from my life, those gods that would replace the God who sits on the throne of my life. And Father, if I'm on that throne, kick me off. Father, I want to be your son. We want to be your sons and daughters. We want to be good citizens of heaven and have our identity in you. And so, Father, our offering this morning, besides our gifts, our time and our talents and our treasure and those things, our gifts is our identity. Remind us of whose we are. You are my master. 
there is no other. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.